The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please remain standing to hear God's word and then for our prayer, asking him to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Several weeks ago, we heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and it concluded with these words, and then we will hear our text, which is the response to Peter's words. These words, Acts 2, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, write these words on our hearts today. Pierce our hearts where we need piercing. Amaze us with the paradox of your grace offered to rebels like us, rebels like those folks that first heard Peter. And Father, persuade us, passionately persuade us to rest and trust in Jesus and make us passionate persuaders of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. That was a stinging indictment with which Peter closed his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Really summing up what he had said earlier in the sermon, you may recall, where he talked about Jesus of Nazareth as attested to his hearers by God through various miraculous signs. Yet they handed him over to lawless men, to the Romans without God's law, to be executed. But God raised him from the dead. Obviously, their verdict on Jesus was diametrically opposed to God's verdict on Jesus. So now what? The implications of the two opposite treatments of Jesus, theirs and God's, did not escape their attention. They knew they were in deep trouble with God himself and that's where our text begins the immediate reaction of Peter's listeners and his reply to them focus our attention on three things that were an operation then that should be an operation whenever the word of God is preached and taught we need to donate these because although I suspect everybody here would agree with them Sometimes they slip from our minds just when we need to keep them in mind. And they are these. Pierced hearts, paradoxical grace, and persuasive pressure. Pierced hearts, 
verse 37. When the gospel is preached clearly in the power of the Holy Spirit, people react. Verse 37, they were cut to the heart. We could say pierced to the heart because the word at the root of this verb also appears in John 19 to describe the piercing of Jesus' side by the spear. So it really is piercing. It's painful, and it gets to their heart. It's similar to an expression that Luke uses twice later in the book of Acts, in chapter 5 and 7, to describe people being cut to the heart, actually literally sawn in two in the heart, uh, which the ESV renders enraged. And and that's right there, uh, because there's a painful reaction that is humble and receptive, like we see here. There's also a painful reaction to the word. Chapter 5, the Sanhedrin don't want to hear about the resurrection, and so they are cut to the heart and angered by Peter and the apostles' witness. And certainly Stephen's hearers don't want to hear his indictment, and so they're angered, they're cut to the heart. But the expression's a little different, different verb over there, and Greek scholars can check that out. But not so very different, really, because the verb we have here is used in the the Old Testament to describe both reactions. Those who are pierced to the heart, brokenhearted, like in Psalm 119, but also those who are outraged, like in Genesis 37, when Jacob's sons are outraged at the report of the rape of their sister Dinah. So it goes both ways. The The thing is, when the word hurts people, People react differently to it. Here, they react with painful humility. Of course, Luke records other reactions throughout the book of Acts to the word. Chapter 17, he records the Athenian philosophers. When Paul finally gets to the point of the resurrection, some mocked. Others said, we want to hear more about this. And some believed. Mockery, open curiosity, Joyful faith, those are reactions too. The point is, the word never leaves people sort of walking away saying, that was interesting. Never leaves people saying, hmm, I'm glad you shared that information with me. No. It impacts people. When the spirit is at work and the preaching of the word, it impacts people. Do we expect that? Do I expect that for you this morning? Or do I expect you to go out saying, okay, that was good, that's fine. That's okay. So-so. The word pierces. And here we see the kind of piercing that it needs to do in our own hearts. The kind of piercing that leads people to ask, what can we do to remedy our alienation from God? How should we react to this fact that our treatment of God's beloved Son has not aligned with God's treatment? That's true of us. It's not just true of them long ago and far away. It's true of us too. We need pierced hearts. And we need to expect that as we bring the word to others, that the Holy Spirit will take the word he breathed out and put in these scriptures. And the word that he is pleased to express even through our stumbling lips and tongues to pierce others' hearts. Come with that kind of expectation as you minister the word. Because you speak of paradoxical grace. That's our second point here, paradoxical grace. Verse 38, they want to know what's to be done. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Notice verse 36, Peter had said, you crucify the one whom God has made Lord in Christ. Just a breath later, he offers to the murderers of God's Messiah forgiveness and the indwelling, empowering, equipping spirit of the living God, the spirit of purity. Them? Them? Now that's paradox. That's truth that shouldn't be true, but it is true. It's surprising. It's shocking. I know we're used to hearing sermons about the gospel and with these wonderful, beautiful promises. Forgiveness, renewal, transformation of life. And even as it does here, it, it goes down through the generations. The promises for your children too. Teach them, call them to faith because the promise is expressed to them. And even in good Abrahamic covenant fashion, spilling beyond the seed of the children into the Gentiles far off, echo from Isaiah's prophecy, even to the Gentiles, Peter doesn't fully get that, I'm sure, as he's preaching, but God knows, the Holy Spirit knows, that it's going to include people like us, people like Swedes, like me, don't have, as far as I know, a drop of Abrahamic blood in my whole body. But I'm a child of Abraham. And if you trust Jesus, so are you. You're Abraham's seed. And so the gospel goes to far off people. We expect that. We know that. But do we realize how shocking it is for Peter to have said, in almost one breath, you killed God's Messiah, and in the next breath, and God will forgive you if you turn. If you come under his protection. If the name of Jesus is pronounced on you, as you express that turn in faith and receive baptism. Too good to be expected. Shocking. Shocking. And it's shocking about you too. I know we can stand aloof and look at those folks long ago and far away and say shame on them for demanding Jesus' death. Shame on that crowd for letting their leaders lure them into Shouting out, crucify, crucify, give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. Get rid of him. We can look at them, point a finger at them. The Christian church all too long over our 2,000 year history pointed at the Jewish people and said they are responsible. Forgetting that the book of Acts is very careful to say we're all responsible. Yes, you and your leaders handed him over, but those lawless Romans put him to death. And uh, so if you don't have an Abrahamic drop of blood in your body either, the Romans count for you and you were part of the conspiracy that put Messiah to death. It's shocking. It's shocking that such grace should be extended to people like them and to people like us. But that's good news. Because that's why Messiah came to suffer and die, to extend mercy, to extend grace to people like us paradoxical grace. Grace we shouldn't have any right to expect, any right to hope for. If we think it's pretty fitting, pretty natural, pretty appropriate for God to show grace to us, then we, we have no clue about what real radical grace is like. It's God's grace to his enemies. When we were his enemies, Christ died for us, making us his friends, his children. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath by his resurrection life. Which brings us to the last point, persuasive, 
pressure, persuasive pressure. You see it first in verse 38, repent and be baptized with the attending promises. And then again in verse 40, save yourselves, or Greek scholars, you see it's a passive imperative form, eris passive imperative, be saved. Try to figure that one out. What can you do to be saved? It's not reflexive. It's not a middle voice verb. Somebody else has to do it. And yet, here's a command. Now, I have a confession to make. Long, long ago, when I was young and restless and reformed, before that was hip and in, Acts 2.38 bothered me a lot. I, I knew about sovereign grace. That's actually why I came to study at Westminster from a school where sovereign grace was a little bit Christian, act, Christian school, but a little bit under a cloud, but I went to Westminster because I knew God's sovereign grace. I knew that only God could bring spiritually dead people to life. I knew that only God could give people repentance and faith. But Acts 2.38 just bothered me because it sounded like Peter was saying, now you need to turn around, you need to get baptized, and then God's going to respond with forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, was Peter who spoke these words, was Luke, who recorded these words in scripture, really, were they Arminians? Or did they believe in baptismal regeneration? So I turned that over, and I turned that over, and I finally, after my MDiv work, uh, went on for a Master of Theology and asked my advisor, Dr. Richard Gaffin, if I could work on this text. Not because I hoped to make some new contribution to theological, exegetical science, just because this, this verse bothered me. And I focused on it. Uh, and I found that Luke knows very well how to be a Calvinist. He hadn't read the Westminster Standards or Warfield or Murray. Uh, knew Paul. I don't know if he'd written, read his letters, but he knew Paul's theology. So, but he knew how to say that God takes the first step, the decisive step, the life-giving step, it's just that he didn't say it the way I'd learned to hear it from Paul. He said it in ways like this, next chapter, where Peter will urge a different crowd, repent and turn away from your sins that your sins may be blotted out. But go on to say, as Peter does in Acts 3, verse 26, God has raised his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. God turns people. And that's the only way we can turn. And then I read further that when the believers in Jerusalem learned about what happened at Cornelius' house while Peter was preaching, they glorified God and said, so to the Gentiles also God has given repentance that leads to life. Repentance is God's gift. Then I read a little further to Acts 14, and Paul and Barnabas come back from their first missionary journey to Antioch and they declare all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In Acts 16, how the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel. Luke knows this very well. He knows this very well. And actually, when you think about it, even in this text that I just read to you, Peter knows it very well, too, because he talks about as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, which is, by the way, one more echo of Joel 2. He quoted that longer section of the outpouring of the Spirit at the beginning of his sermon. 
in the verse just beyond where Peter closes the quote, Joel speaks of God calling the remnants, the survivors to himself. God calls, so people respond. So, what a relief. Luke was a Calvinist. And so was Peter. And if you want to read how Acts 2.38 fits into my understanding of Luke's good, reformed soteriology, you have to go over to the library and check out that thin hardcover black book that's still over there that you probably have to blow dust off of it. What I want to focus on here is this striking thing. Peter knows God is sovereign. Luke knows God is sovereign. And at the same time, they passionately, Peter passionately persuades his hearers to respond to the gospel. Their utter confidence in God's sovereign initiative did not make them complacent did not make them content to lay out the truth and then wait for the Holy Spirit to apply it to the elect without another word from them. In response to the crowd's question, brothers, what shall we do? Peter's answer was not, well, it all depends. If you're elect, and I don't know who's elect because that's the secret counsel of God, if you're elect, you can and you will repent and be baptized. But if you're not elect, there's really nothing you can do, so... No! You don't hear that in Peter's voice. It's repent, it's turn. It's submit to the redemptive work and lordship of Christ by receiving baptism. It's embrace the promise of the last day's outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will also include you now as witnesses, as we are witnesses of the mighty deeds of God in Christ. It's all of that. Please, please respond. Please be saved. God saves, but please turn. Peter knows very well nobody can turn unless God turns hearts, but he also knows that God uses the preached word and the passion of preachers to turn hearts. Do you care? Do you care as you teach, as you preach? Do you, t- do you care that people turn around? And I had to ask myself, do I care about you? I mean, this group, you're here, you're paying big bucks in tuition. I'm presuming, and this is an a, a, a semi-empty presumption, that you're here because God's spirit has touched your heart and drawn you to faith in Christ. But I don't want to presume that. Whatever degrees you have, whatever GPA you're maintaining, however well you're doing in uh, maybe a pastoral internship, people think you speak well, people appreciate the way you have people gifts, working with others, whatever that is, you know your heart, and God knows your heart. And so my calling to you, my responsibility, and, and really as God moves me, is to say, trust Trust in Jesus if you never have. And if you have, trust him more deeply and give more glory to God that he's the one who saves. And the next time you have opportunities to speak of Christ, whether it's in exhorting in a local congregation or teaching a Bible study or leading a youth group or a conversation at the grocery store, want people, want people to come to know Christ want that as Peter wants 
his hearers to come to know Christ. Trust his sovereign power to open hearts. Only he can do that. Only he can turn folks around. But care enough that he do that and know that he will use you by the sovereign work of his spirit to turn people around for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father, these few verses are packed with power. Even in these few moments we've meditated upon them. We have witnessed people pierced straight through to the heart by the reality of their guilt and then beautifully comforted by the surprise of your grace. And we've heard your servant urge them and your spirit urge us to recognize the gravity of our sin and the glory of Jesus' grace and to turn from any and every rival to Jesus in our hearts, turn away from all of them and embrace him with all the strength and life that your Holy Spirit gives in humble trust and deep repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.